welcome to the Tales from the Shadows podcast, the podcast that is becoming me talking about fairy tales in my wardrobe. I'm Emily. Uh, here in Ireland, we're still in lockdown, though we are starting to come out of it. We're in phase one, so we're allowed to meet people in groups of up to four outside, as long as everyone is still two metres apart. Phase two will be starting on the 8th of June, and that'll allow us to visit households and some businesses will start to open, including public libraries, but there will still have to be social distancing kept in place. So that's where uh, I am at the moment, where um, where we are. The rest of the Shadow Girls are, they're doing good. Um, we just can't get together to record the stories. And given the theme of being locked in rooms and forbidden to go outside, it made me think of a, think of a, a well-known fairy tale that involves a locked room which someone is forbidden to open. I'm talking about Bluebeard. There's many, many versions of Bluebeard out there. And actually, I have told, I think, two different versions that could be categorised as Bluebeard stories in the podcast before. Pretty Polly, which I told as one of the mini episodes, uh, I think for World Storytelling Day, which is taken from uh, Lady Isabel and the Elven Knight, which is sometimes regarded as a sort of proto-Bluebeard story. And in our Devil episode, I can't remember if it was Devil episode part one or part two, I also told the story about uh, how the devil tried to marry three sisters. But what makes a Bluebeard story? Well, I've gone back to the classic fairy tales edited by Maria Tara, and she gives three distinctive features of a Bluebeard narrative. A secret chamber, an agent of prohibition who also meets out punishment, and a figure who violates this prohibition. So I'm sure you can already think of plenty of stories, both within and without the folklore genre, that would meet these three criterias. Additionally, bluebird stories, they tend to be about a marriage, generally where the husband is hiding something, where the husband is a concealed villain, and where the wife discovers his villainy. Maria Tartar also gives a number of examples where this bluebird model is used in novels, films, particularly the sort of gothic thrillers known as the paranoid woman films. She points out Hitchcock's adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which could in some ways be seen as a bluebird story. Ditto the 1940s Jane Eyre. The various adaptations of Gaslight. And she also mentions a Fritz Lang film that I haven't seen and didn't know of called Beyond the Secret Door, which I'm quite keen to go and see if I can find a copy of, because... Sounds interesting. Uh, it's a Bluebeard story. It's got a very intriguing title. And I quite enjoy Fritz Lang's movies. Like the gothic German expressionist style he brings to them. His most famous film is probably Metropolis. Early science fiction film. And I think the first, or at least one of the first films to uh, involve a, an evil sexy female robot. As a central character and plot point. And now that I've got suitably off topic, it's time for a story. This is my telling of Bluebeard taken from Charles Perrault's Old Mother Goose Tales. Once upon a time, there was a very wealthy man. He had estates in the country, fine houses in the town. He had carriages and horses. He had gold and silver, buckled shoes and jewels on his fingers. But he also had a beard. A rather unusual beard, for his beard was blue. And hence he was known to all as Bluebeard. Now, at the time that this story begins, Bluebeard had no wife, and it is a truth universally known that I will take any opportunity to misquote Jane Austen, and also that a man in possession of a good fortune 
will be on the lookout for a good wife. And to this end, Bluebeard wrote to one of his neighbours, a woman who had two unmarried daughters. He said he wished to wed one of her daughters. He didn't mind which one. He could leave that decision to the girls. And the two daughters discussed the matter, tossing the engagement back and forth between the two of them. It would indeed be a fine thing to be married to such a rich man. They could have a wonderful life, but neither of them fancied the idea of wedding a man with a beard of such distinctive colour. And what's more, it was rumoured that this was not his first marriage, or even his second or third, and no one seemed to be able to say what had become of his previous wives. Seeming to sense their reluctance, Bluebeard decided to throw a great party in one of his country estates, inviting the two girls, their mother, some of their closest friends, and a handful of young gentlemen from the surrounding neighbourhood. The party lasted a full week, and there were all kinds of entertainments. Dancing, hunting, fireworks and outdoor concerts. The girls were most impressed with their host's generosity, with the fine house and gardens, with the taste he displayed in his art collection. And little by little, the younger of the two sisters began to think that, well, maybe his beard wasn't quite so blue as it had appeared before. And so the younger of the two sisters wed Bluebeard. He took her away to one of his finest houses, a chateau which had been in his family for generations. Almost as soon as they had arrived and made themselves comfortable, he told his wife that he needed to be off. He had received an urgent letter. He must travel for business. He would be gone at least six weeks. Bluebeard called his wife to her and handed her a set of keys, a set of keys that would open every door in the chateau. While I am gone, you are mistress of this place, and all within it is yours to dispose of as you wish. This is the key to my strong room. You will find my chests of gold. This is the key to my library. You will find all my documents. On and on he went, explaining which key opened which door. You may do as you like with all the possessions there, Throw my gold out of the window if it brings you joy. But this key, he said, holding up the smallest key on the ring, this key is the only key that will open a door in the cellar. And all I ask of you, my wife, is that you do not open that door. Do not open it even so much as a crack, for if you unlock that door, there will be no end to my fury. And after this, he handed his wife the keys, kissed her goodbye, and was on his way. Not long after Bluebeard had left, his wife's elder sister, Anne, came to visit. She was curious about the house, but had been a little bit too frightened to visit while the master, with his terrible blue beard, was still in residence. The new bride took great delight in showing her sister all over the house. Together they admired the jewels, the silks, the tapestries. They looked at their reflections in the great glass mirrors, but there was niggling away in the back of the bride's mind the thought of that little key and what might be behind that door. That night she could not sleep for curiosity. So she crept out of her room with her set of keys and went down the stairs, down into the cellar, and found the door. She pressed the little key into the hole, turned it, and opened the door slowly. The light from her candle fell into the room and seemed to glimmer on the floor. 
It was reflecting in something, something wet and thick. It took her a moment to realise what the substance on the floor was and what it was that she was seeing reflected in it. But once she saw and once she knew the image she beheld, she dropped both her candle and her key in fright. The floor was slick with congealing blood and reflecting in that pool were the bodies of Bluebeard's wives. The bodies of six headless women hung from hooks in that room, their heads hanging beside them, held up by their hair. The bride scrabbled around in the darkness to feel for the candle to find the key. Once she had it in her hand, she closed the door and locked it behind her. But she found that the key had fallen into the pool of blood. Her hands and the key were now both stained. She ran to try to wash the blood away, but though the blood would come off her hands, it would not come off the key. She scrubbed with water, with soap, with salt, with sand, but still the blood stain would not remove. She knew once Bluebeard saw the key, he would know she had disobeyed him, had opened that door, had discovered his secret. But alas, the next day, before she could have time to make a plan with her sister to escape, Bluebeard returned. It seemed that his business had been finished before he even arrived. He'd got a letter on the road telling him he need not trouble himself, and so had come home to see his beautiful bride. Though she was pale as death to see him, the bride made her best attempt to pretend to be pleased at his return. She tried to fawn over him, hoping to distract him so he would not ask for the return of the keys. But that night he did ask his wife for the keys, and with trembling hands she returned them to him. Bluebeard looked at the keys one by one and then asked, But my wife, where is the smallest key, the key that I told you not to use? I do not see it on this ring. The bride replied that, oh, she, she had taken it off the ring so as not to be tempted. She must have left it upstairs in her bedroom. She would fetch it in the morning. And when morning came, Bluebeard asked his wife, Wife, where is the smallest key? And knowing she had no other option, slowly she climbed the stairs up to her bedroom, took the key from where she had hidden it, Still stained with blood, she tried to wipe it off with her handkerchief as she walked slowly down the stairs, but still the blood stain would not be removed. She handed it back to Bluebeard. He saw the blood, and he knew the door had been opened. Well, wife, since you were so keen to open that door, prepare yourself to join the ladies therein. The bride fell to her knees, begging him to spare her life, but Bluebeard would not be moved. Come, it is time to remove your head. Enough of these tears. The bride then begged that if she, if she must be killed, would she not be allowed a little time to prepare herself, to compose herself, to ready her soul to meet its maker? Bluebeard consented to give her a quarter of an hour. She rushed upstairs to where her sister Anne was and told her all. She begged her sister Anne to go to the tallest tower and look out. Their brothers, one a musketeer, one a dragoon, they were meant to be coming to visit that day. Sister Anne must go to the tallest tower and try to signal to them to hurry. Anne went to the tallest tower and looked out, but she could see no sign of their brothers. A quarter of an hour passed and Bluebeard called up to his wife. Wife, come down to meet your death. The bride called to her sister Anne, 
but still Anne could see nothing. Slowly the bride went to the door. She called again to Anne, but there was no sign of the brothers. Bluebeard called again. Bride, come down. She went down the stairs, slow as a funeral march, pausing at every landing to call to her sister, but still there was no sign of the brothers. When she reached the bottom of the stairs, Sister Anne did call out, I can see them. I see a cloud of dust and two riders. I shall signal to them to hurry. The bride hoped her brothers would reach her in time as she slowly walked to where her husband was waiting, a cutlass in his hand. Again she fell to her knees and again she begged for her life, but again Bluebeard told her she had opened the door and now she must be prepared to be behind it for all eternity. He grabbed his wife by the hair, holding it up and stretching her neck out as he raised his cutlass high. Just at that moment, the door burst in. The two brothers had arrived, one a dragoon, one a musketeer. They saw the danger their sister was in and without a second thought, launched themselves at Bluebeard, stabbed and shot and left him for dead at the foot of the stairs. Sister Anne came running down. The two sisters hugged their brothers and told them of the terrible things that had happened in this house. But the story does not quite end there, for it seemed that Bluebeard, despite his many marriages, had never produced an heir. And, as his widow, the bride was now to inherit all of his fortune. She used a portion of this fortune to buy each of her brothers a good commission. She used another portion as a great dowry so that her sister Anne may marry a pleasant gentleman whom she had always had an affection for, and then used the last to marry herself to a worthy man, who banished all the memories of her miserable time spent with Bluebeard. And, of course, because this is Perot, he ends the story with a moral, and this is his moral, as translated by Maria Tartar. Curiosity, in spite of its many charms, can bring with it serious regrets. You can see a thousand examples of it every day. Women succumb, but it is a fleeting pleasure, and as soon as you satisfy it, it ceases to be. And it always proves very, very costly. And he has another moral, as he occasionally does. If you take the sensible point of view and study this grim little story, you will understand that this tale is one that took place many years ago. No longer are husbands so terrible, demanding the impossible, acting unhappy and jealous. With their wives they toe the line, and whatever colour their beards may be, it is not hard to tell which of the pair is the master. I think in that second moral, Perot is being a little bit snarky. Maybe he has a few friends in mind who he considers to be henpecked. I think he is being a bit optimistic in saying no longer are husbands so terrible, as if domestic abuse is something that only belongs to the past. It's not hard to see why the Bluebeard story has become less of a bedtime favourite than other of the Mother Goose tales. Though you will still find it in the occasional copy of children's classics, and of course in the fairy tales of Charles Perrault. It's also not hard to see how this story has inspired so many adaptations and different versions, particularly in the more gothic horror frame. The, the image of the wives hanging up by their hair, the blood slick with floor. It's an image that really sticks in your head. And there's a French film by, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, sorry, 
Catherine Brillat, B-R-E-I-L-L-A-T. I'm sorry, I'm really bad at pronouncing things. It's a 2009 film. It's an adaptation of Bluebeard. And it's it's two stories interlinking. It starts with two little girls who go up into the attic and they find a book. It's Bluebeard. And the younger of the two sisters starts to read the story to her older sister. And her older sister is is quite horrified by the story, while the younger one is, is very much enjoying it and enjoying reading it. And I think that's the thing with a lot of these fairy tales that do have the darker themes. You really enjoy them when you're little because, oh, it's you sort of enjoy the violence and the death and the, the slight feeling that maybe you're not meant to be reading this. But then when you get older, it becomes a lot more frightening. I can remember for me the, the point where Little Red Riding Hood went from being just a, a bedtime story, a nursery story, to actually quite a frightening story. But the first part of the film is these these little girls reading the Bluebeard story and then the second part is the actual narrative of Bluebeard. Um, the two are sort of intercut to each other so you start with the girl reading then you you see the story as if it's what she's reading and then you cut back to her and it continues on that way. I'm not describing it very well but it's the two narratives. It's the Bluebeard narrative and it's the girls reading it and it's very much focused on the sisters and the relationship between the sisters. It's been a few years since I've seen the film, though I do have the DVD, so I might be watching it this evening. But there's this one scene I remember. It, it's almost a surreal scene. It's of the room where the brides are hung up and they are, they are hung hanging from the ceiling. The floor is covered in congealed blood. You can't see the, the bride's heads, um, the way they're lit. You can just sort of see their like their their legs which are because of rigor mortis stiff and sort of hanging out almost like A-frames and the little girl who's reading the story she walks in among them sort of in around and under their legs sort of like a, a child sort of like playing walking between the lampposts splashing in the blood on the floor and it's an image that just once I saw it I, could, you, I couldn't get it out of my head It's it's been stuck there since 2009 and I can't tell you exactly what the filmmaker's intent behind that scene was, but my interpretation of it is that it is when you are a young child and you first discover these stories, you enjoy them, you enjoy the horror of them, you enjoy the grotesqueness, the danger, but you don't understand the consequences, you don't understand, I suppose, the finality of death. So it's something you can play with. It's not frightening, at least it's not frightening yet. I would highly recommend the film, if only for the costumes and set. They are beautiful and sumptuous and it's a really good telling of the story. It's a really good framing of it. I really like the way it focuses on the relationship of the two sisters, uh, the sister who marries and her sister Anne, on the historical economic situation, how marriage was a marketplace, how this young girl, she's marrying, she's marrying for her family. Marriage isn't just a way to provide herself with economic safety. It's also to provide for her widowed mother and to try to help her sister to get a dowry. The Bluebeard part of it also, it stays very close to Perrault's Bluebeard. It embellishes, it lengthens out the time a little bit, draws out the depth that's in the story while still staying very true and very close to the story.
and the costumes and sets are really pretty and I'm a bit of a magpie. I did encounter the story of Bluebeard as a child. I can't remember where I first encountered it. It was sort of, it was there in the ether and I do remember reading it in various uh, sort of books, collections of fairy tales. We had a really pretty illustrated version of the Perot books, which I now cannot find. And there are two things I, uh, I remember from my childhood encounterings of Bluebeard. One, in the illustrations, Bluebeard was always depicted as, a, as an oriental other. He was normally wearing a turban. Uh, his weapon of choice seemed to be a scimitar. There was very much an othering of him and this othering was taking place in the form of the sort of the stereotype of the barbarous oriental slave girls and sadistic sultans because let's just throw a little bit of racism into our bedtime stories while we're at it and that's a that's a whole heavy topic but the other thing i do remember is this question of well he wants to kill this bride because she opened the door and it's implied that you know, he's killed the other brides because they similarly opened the door. They failed this test. But why did he kill his first wife? And it's a question that goes unanswered. But I think the asking of the question, it illuminates um, a certain slant that the story is taking. Because by asking, well, what did the first wife do? We're looking for a reason to blame the victim. And if you look at the moral Perot gives at the end, his version of the story, rather than it being about uh, a man who is a serial killer, it becomes a story about the danger of woman's curiosity. It's her fault for opening the door, rather than it's his fault for being a psychotic killer. And there are plenty of stories out there about, oh, the danger of woman's curiosity. Uh, Pandora's box, uh, even, even the story of uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, could be seen as a story of, ah, damn women, wanting to know stuff, look at the trouble it gets them into. And it makes the story, it makes the story very, very victim blaming that these women, these wives who, who don't have names, who have been killed, well, it was their own fault. Which I think is a very dangerous narrative because this is a story about domestic abuse. Uh, it's taken to a, a heightened fairy tale level, but it is a story about power and abuse within a married relationship and with Bluebeard being the most popular version or most prolific version of the story and with it being the one that puts the blame on the woman as if she is justly punished for her curiosity with death well I think that's that's quite dangerous I'm not saying we shouldn't tell it at all but I think we should be aware that it does put that little insidious seed into the mind of the child reading it well, what did the first wife do? Planting the seed of the victim must have done something, therefore it's her fault. So does that mean don't tell the Bluebeard version? I don't know, there's, you can tell it in different ways, and I've told it in different ways in various things. Or there's loads of different forms of the Bluebeard story. I've already told two on this podcast, and I'm going to tell a third. This is the one found in the Grimm's collection. The Brothers Grimm's fairy tale collection actually have two Bluebeard stories, uh, The Felcher's Bride and The Robber Bridegroom. And these are stories that are seen as being um, well, a bit more positive in view of the female character. For one, she manages to save and rescue herself rather than having to wait for her brothers. Though I will say in the Bluebeard version, I like that uh, it's the sisters having to rely on each other, that she's relying on her sister Anne 
And that's something I think that the Bluebeard film really draws out, this relationship between the sisters. But I've... Uh, sorry, I'm going on a tangent. Where was I? Oh, yes. The robber bridegroom and the felter's bride. In that the heroine, she manages to rescue herself. She discovers the secret herself. She gets herself out of trouble through her own cunning. But it doesn't frame her curiosity as a bad thing or a dangerous thing or something that needs to be punished. It doesn't have the implication that, well, they deserved it. They were asking for it. It quite rightly puts uh, the blame on the villain, who in one case is a group of cannibal robbers, and in the other, an evil sorcerer. And I think that's enough preamble. Let's get to the story. Once upon a time, there was a beggar who liked nothing more than to amuse himself by putting on the disguise of a beggar and going door to door, stealing pretty young women. One day, in his disguise, he came into a house where there were three very pretty sisters. He knocked on the door and the eldest answered. She looked at the man who seemed very poor, very hungry and very downtrodden. And so, of course, her heart was moved to give him something to eat. She brought a loaf of bread but as soon as she handed it to him to place it in his basket, he grabbed her by the arm, threw her into his basket, and then, quick as a flash, made off back to his own castle. He took off his disguise, took the girl out of the basket, and told her that this was now her new home, and that in two weeks' time, he would marry her. After a few days, the sorcerer had to leave the castle. He told the young woman that she could go anywhere she liked, do anything she wanted with what she found there but that there was one door which she must not open. He gave her the keys to all the doors in the house, pointing out which was the key of the forbidden door. He also gave her a small egg, which he told her she must carry with her wherever she went. And then he left. The young woman went all through the castle, opening the many doors. She saw treasures, gold and jewels. In one room there was an aviary of birds of many colours. But she began to wonder... What might be behind the forbidden door? She wondered if it might be a way to escape, and so she went there. But as soon as she placed the key in the keyhole, the door swung open, and she was met with a horrible sight. In the room there was a great basin, almost overflowing with dismembered body parts. The floor was slick with blood, and she could see a great block with a sharp axe leaning against it. In her horror, she dropped the egg. It fell to the floor, and though it did not crack, it took on the colour of blood. The young woman took the egg, locked the door, and tried to clean the egg. She tried to wash it, wipe it clean, but the stain would not leave. When the sorcerer returned, he asked for his keys, and he asked for the egg. When he saw the egg was red, he grabbed the young woman by the hair and dragged her to the forbidden door. He opened it, pulled her inside, and chopped her into pieces. Then, once he had cleaned himself up a little bit, he decided he would put on his beggar's disguise and go and get the second sister. He arrived at the house, looking poor and hungry, and the second sister, she was moved to help him. But just as she handed him an apple, he grabbed her by the wrist, threw her into his basket, and quick as a flash made his way back to his own castle. Once there again, he removed his disguise, took the young woman out of the basket and told her that in two weeks he planned to marry her. Similarly, after a few days had passed, he said he had to be away for a little bit. 
He gave her the keys, he gave her the egg, and he gave her the instruction not to open the forbidden door. Well, of course, as soon as he was gone, she rushed to the forbidden door, thinking this might be a way to escape. And just like her sister before her, she was greeted with the horrible sight, a floor slick with blood, a sharp axe leaning against a chopping block, and a basin full of body parts, some which seemed to resemble that of her elder sister. Just like her elder sister, she dropped the egg to the floor and took on the colour of blood. When the sorcerer returned, he saw she too had failed his test, so he dragged her into the room and chopped her up into little pieces. Then, after taking a bath, he decided he would try his luck with the third sister. He put on his disguise, he arrived at the house, and as soon as the girl opened the door, he grabbed her, threw her into his basket, and set off back to his castle. Once there, he again took off his disguise, took the young woman out of the basket, and told her that in two weeks' time, he planned to marry her. After a few days had passed, the sorcerer told the young woman that he had to be away for a few days. He told her she could go anywhere she wished in the castle. Anywhere but one place. There was one door she must not open. He gave her the keys, showed her which key would open the forbidden door, and gave her an egg. He told her that she must carry this egg wherever she went throughout the castle. And then he left. The young woman took her time exploring the castle. She went up to the tallest tower and looked out the window. She could just see the figure of the sorcerer as he walked away from the castle. She went through the rooms one by one. She went through the room full of beautiful birds. She went through the room full of gold, a room full of silver, a room full of crystal and precious stones. She went through every room in the castle, carefully noting what was there. And at last, she came to the forbidden door. She placed the egg in her pocket to keep it safe, and then she opened the door and was greeted with a horrible sight, a floor slick with blood, a pile of mutilated body parts, a chopping block and a sharp axe. But rather than fall into hysterics, as anyone might at such a sight, she managed to keep her composure. She stepped into the room, being careful not to slip on the blood on the floor, went to the pile of body parts and started to sort through them, working out which piece belonged to which corpse, like a very macabre and grisly jigsaw. When she had finally sorted out all of the pieces, she went and found a needle and thread and began to stitch the body parts back together. And as soon as the bits were joined, they seemed to come back to life. Once the ankle was joined to the leg, was joined to the knee, was joined to the thigh, it would get up and start trying to walk around. Finally, she had joined all of the pieces to all of the correct bodies. Her two sisters, once their arms were joined to their torsos, they wrapped around her in an embrace. Once their heads were reattached to their necks, they cried out that she had saved them. But she had not saved them yet. In one of the rooms, there was a marvellous basket. The basket that the sorcerer had himself used to kidnap the young women. No matter how much you put into this basket, it would never seem full. So... The youngest of the three sisters had her two elder sisters, along with the other young women who had been reassembled and brought back to life, all climb into this basket. She told them that soon they would be at her parents' house, and once they were there, they must gather as many people as they could and bring them back to the castle and burn it to the ground. Her sisters cried, but what about her? What will become of her? 
the younger sister told them not to worry, for as sure as a bird can fly, she too would be home before long. Later, when the sorcerer arrived home, he asked the young woman for the keys and for the egg. She handed him the keys and took the egg out of her pocket. The sorcerer marvelled at how spotless the egg was and concluded that she must have passed the test and not opened the door. He sent off invitations to all of his acquaintance, saying that there was to be a wedding, and he found that now that she was his true betrothed, he was almost powerless to refuse her anything she might ask. The young woman told the sorcerer that if he truly intended to marry her properly, he would have to send a bride price to her parents. She said she had placed silver and gold in a basket, and that he must carry it on his own back to the home of her parents, not stopping, not setting the basket down, and not even looking inside it once. The sorcerer, well, he felt he could not refuse her, so he put the basket on his back, and though it was heavy, he set off to her parents' house, not stopping, not setting it down, and not looking in it even once. The young woman, she went to the tallest tower and watched as the sorcerer walked away with the basket on his back. Once he was out of sight, she went into the sorcerer's library, where he kept a grinning skull upon his desk. She took the skull and went about all of the rooms of treasure. She gathered silks and lace, silver and gold, diamonds and jewels, and she went to the tallest tower and placed the skull sitting in the window and dressed it up prettily just like a new bride. She then got a barrel of honey and a feather pillow. She smeared the honey all over herself, then split the pillow open and rolled about in the feathers until she looked like some strange, enormous bird. And thus attired, she left the sorcerer's castle. On her way home, she met the dark priest who was to perform the marriage. You, Fetcher's bird, where have you come from? he asked. I am coming from Fetcher's house. What is his young bride doing there? She has swept the house from top to bottom, and now she is looking out the tallest window. She continued on, and she met the wedding guests. Fletcher's bird, where are you coming from? I am coming from Fletcher's house. What is his young bride doing there? She has swept the house from top to bottom, and now she is looking out the tallest window. Finally, she met the sorcerer himself, coming back very slowly after carrying the great weight to the home of his bride. Just like the others before him, he asked, Fetcher's bird, where are you coming from? I am coming from Fetcher's house. What is my young bride doing there? She has swept the house from top to bottom, and now she is looking out the tallest window. The sorcerer turned and thought he could indeed see his bride looking out the tallest window, smiling down at him and so he hurried his steps so as to be back to her sooner. Just when the sorcerer and all of his guests were assembled in the castle, there arrived all of the relatives of the young women he had stolen. They locked all of the doors and set the castle alight. They watched as it burnt, until the castle and all who had been inside it were reduced to nothing but ash. And so that is the story of the Fletcher or the Fetcher's Bride. I'm not sure which one I'm saying anymore because my brain is slightly melted, both from quarantine and also it's a rather warm day and it's very warm in the wardrobe. I am surrounded by petticoats and capes. 
I also have a skull in the other room. Well, I have a, a model skull. It's not a real one. But um, there, due to other reasons, there are some jewels stuck on it. So I'm now wondering if I put maybe some lace and some fake flowers on it, could I get someone to mistake it for a bride if I put it in one of the windows at the top of the house? That's an arts and crafts project that I'm going to be working on. So that version of the story, though it's, I'd say, equally gruesome, if not more so, because as well as murder, you have dismemberment and people being burnt alive. It, it seems a bit more positive to me, at least in regard to the women involved. They, they're all alive at the end. Some of them have been brought back to life, but they're all alive and hopefully live happily ever after once getting over the trauma of being kidnapped, almost forced into a marriage and dismembered. A motif I also really like, you probably guessed I like this motif, is the sisters saving sisters. I think there's a whole subcategory of fairy tales saved by a sister. And I quite like it. I like the, the familial bond. I mean, there's a reason that Frozen was so successful. The power of sisterly love is a power to be reckoned with. This version is also quite similar to um, the one I told in the previous episode about the devil marrying three sisters. Again, you have the uh, malevolent bridegroom going after three sisters from eldest to youngest, the youngest saving them all and getting the husband to bring them back to their home in a basket or case carried on his back with strict orders not to look into it. A large difference, though, is in the story about the devil. The devil courts the sisters. He doesn't reveal himself to be the Lord of Hell, so he's not being entirely open about the marriage but there is at least a little bit more consent than the sorcerer who just kidnaps them. And what does it say about the sorcerer that the devil himself seems to show more respect to women than the sorcerer? There is loads more that can be said and discussed around Bluebeard stories, around where they come from, the influences they take, the influences they have on other stories, their influences in pop culture, the ways we tell them and what they say. So much more that can be said, but unfortunately... As I've mentioned, my brain is melting. But please don't let that stop... Blah, 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 blah. See? Melty brain. But please don't let that stop you talking about it. Uh, talk about it with yourselves, your friends. And if you'd like to, you can get in touch with me and some of the other Shadow Girls. Um, I don't always see the messages that are sent on Instagram when they're sent because of the way Instagram hides messages from me. But if you do want to get in touch with me or the other Shadow Girls, you can reach us in a number of ways. We're on various of the social medias. I have no idea why I said social medias like that. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are Tales from the Shadows at Twitter and you can find us at Tales Shadows. On Instagram, we are at Tales from the Shadows. Same with Facebook, at Tales from the Shadows. Uh, we've got an email address. Guess what that is? At Tales from the Shadows at gmail.com. Why, Emily, is it tales from the shadows rather than sounds from the shadows? Well, you see, this all started because we've got a theatre group called Tales from the Shadows who do storytelling with shadow puppetry. And when we started the podcast, I wanted to differentiate the two a bit, so I called it Sounds from the Shadows, but kept all the same social media and stuff, uh, thinking it would make it less confusing, but it's just made it more confusing. There are links in the episode description, don't worry. Please do get in contact. Um, if you have thoughts, questions, what's your favourite version of the Bluebeard story? What have you always taken as the meaning or the message behind the Bluebeard story? What's your favourite image or retelling of it? 
What's your opinion on the French serial killer who was best mates with Joan of Arc, who may or may not be the original Bluebeard? Nope, that's not a conspiracy theory. That is a very dark, grisly and rather weird part of history. And one I'm not going to go fully into because uh, this is not a true crime podcast. And though I'm, I'm reasonably okay with fairy tales about child murder, I'm a lot less comfortable around real events of that. Well, that's taken a dark turn. If you really, really, really super like the podcast and would like to support us, uh, please like, review, share, subscribe, tell a friend, all that stuff. And if you would like to help support us financially, we do have a Patreon. We do also have a Ko-fi. Again, links in the episode description. Thank you so much to our patrons who are supporting us and have continued to support us, especially during this time of... Well, we're certainly living in interesting times. Again, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the stories. Goodbye!